Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that will always have Paris. My name's Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. We are joined for the second time this year by the inspiration behind Society.com and Birmingham Friends of the Earth activist, Shaz Rahman. Hello, Shaz. Hello. By the time you hear this, Joe Biden will have been sworn in as US president. He's come into office with the most ambitious climate change plan that any mainstream presidential candidate has had in history. What is it? Joe Biden will have officially signed up the United States to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement, which I think he would he said he'd do in his first day in office. What is that, Shaz, and why is that significant? Before Donald Trump, America, via Obama, was signed up to the Paris Agreement, which said that every country would attempt to reduce the rise in global temperatures by 1.5 degrees. It was very important because it's the first time that an agreement between all countries has ever happened. And whilst it has problems because it's not legally binding, it, is the, it was the first step that we could have a quantifiable way for everybody to have the same target. And then when Donald Trump came along, he decided it wasn't for him. And then America officially left at the end of 2020. This year there's a meeting which I think is meant to be happening in the UK. So the UK will be hosting COP26, which in November, countries are going to essentially ratchet up their agreements, aren't they, to try and lower their emissions even more. And so the fact that America's at that table, as we talked about on our last show with you, is is very, very significant as well. It is, because this was meant to happen last year, but due to the pandemic, it was, has been postponed. And if it had happened last year, would America have taken part? Donald Trump has shown no interest in issues around climate change or climate emergency, so possibly not. Yeah, I mean, the importance of having uh, America at that table, I don't think can actually be uh, stressed enough. Like, even though we live in a in a world where, you know, China is on the rise, India is on the rise, that, that we're, we're no longer necessarily in a, you know, a monopolar world where America is the only power that, that really matters. Having America at the table um, really matters because it means that there is somebody in, in a very powerful position internationally to actually start pushing for for things because what otherwise what you might find is a lot of the developing nations or the uh, or china or, or or whomever might start to fall back a little bit in certain areas because you know it, it costs them money that, that if there's not enough pressure on them they're not necessarily going to, to to move forward whilst when you have america there and actually arguing for things moving in the right direction you are in a a much better place than if you've just got the UK and the EU doing it. Yeah, it's going to help having Biden uh, to, you know, for example, tell Bolsonaro to stop chopping down the Amazon at the rate they are. Trump wouldn't care about that. He'd possibly even encourage it. So having somebody with the will and the power, like America 
may be in decline, arguably, economically, but it is still the largest economy in the world by a distance. It's still got the largest carbon emissions per capita by a massive distance. So if we don't have America on board, there is actually zero chance of averting the climate emergency in a way that we can, future generations can live. So having America on board is, is a massive deal. And I think just in terms of that, that geopolitics is about showing that the world can work together and come together on this common purpose as well, isn't it? Yeah, otherwise, there is that, that backsliding, I think. Um, the, the, the fact that the US wasn't at Kyoto as well back in the day means that actually there is maybe a reason to hope, isn't there? Like 2021 could be the time when the world does start not only talking the talk on climate change, but might actually walk the walk as well. So it could be a proper turning point, couldn't it? Yeah, because uh, Biden has promised to spend $2 trillion on a green recovery strategy. That is an unprecedented number. And if that's focused correctly, that is a, that is a massive game changer. Let's talk about that. So he wants America to be net zero in their electricity by 2035. And that's a big part of that plan, isn't it? Uh, as you say, $2 trillion is, and I'm no economist, but that's a lot of money. So what's he actually going to spend it on? A bit like this country, where we have moved away from coal rapidly. Part of that is bringing renewable energy as the standard. So one of the things that Trump did try to do is he tried to give the coal industry a lifeline and try to resuscitate it, even though economically it doesn't work anymore. Like just from a business point of view, you might there's no point in trying to continue coal mining because you don't have the massive subsidies of the past and you'll just lose money. Whereas if you can create lots of offshore wind farms like we have here, that will bring both an economic and environmental benefits. And that's why Joe Biden has, I think, correctly realised that it's not just a case of avoiding a climate emergency. It's a massive opportunity to reskill people who may be going from a coal job that now that plant has closed down and they, the, the local community may not be able to uh, go into another coal power station. But if they built uh, wind turbines and had large-scale solar, it may be these locations instead. They, those people could retrain into a new industry and that industry will thrive for the next 30 years. Yeah, the jobs thing seems to be the, the defining thing, doesn't it? I think it, it was it Biden said, you know, when I think of climate change, I think of jobs. I think was one of his lines on the campaign trail. And that does seem to be how that circle was squared. Because obviously, politically, I suppose, that rust belt was lost. And the fact that Trump tried to bring, was talking about bringing back these coal jobs, rather than closing them because they're uneconomic, which obviously is the, is the, the quite literally the Thatcherite thing to do. That instead, it seems to be about, as you say, a lot of retraining, a lot of reskilling. Is there a lot of, in, of infrastructure as well? Because I suppose in terms of, I mean, we've talked about this already on the podcast, you know, public transport in America is maybe not what it could be. But is there a big plan on public transport or is it all about sort of these green jobs and new industries, that sort of thing? So Joe Biden in nerdy circles is known as Amtrak Joe. So I don't know if you've heard that before, but he loves trains. And one of the things, one of the plans he does have is to bring high-speed rail to America to increase services between uh, between places like New York City and Washington, D.C. 
So at the moment, you'd probably fly that. But if you had a high-speed alternative, I think that would work better. He also has plans to bring a high-speed rail coast-to-coast line. So one of the big problems America has is because it's so big that domestic flights are the norm. Like if you were in the UK, you can drive pretty much anywhere within a day. Whereas if you want to go, well, we've talked about this before, you want to go from New York to California, you want to go to New York to LA, that's a five-day drive. And that's you pretty much sleeping and driving and about, that's about it. Whereas if you had options where you don't have to fly, that, that could be a massive game changer. And also, um, yeah, New York City has great transit. But if you go to small towns in America, there's barely anything. So that's why they're so reliant on cars. You don't have public paths or sidewalks. You just have freeways. In, investment in those kind of things is what is going to make a difference day to day for American lives. But that's that's one of the areas where I'm a bit sceptical because in all, all of the plans, he doesn't mention the bicycle. I, I've read his election address. I've read some articles. He doesn't mention... So whilst he's pro-public public transport and public transit, uh, he thinks, I think like most Americans, that it's technology that's going to save the day. New types of technology, like new types of solar batteries that will be more efficient than the current lithium-ion batteries. We're going to be able to store them in a better way rather than we need to restructure our society so we prioritise public transport public or transit over the car. So he, um, one of the things Trump did was repeal tax credits for electric vehicles. So if you want to buy an electric car in America, you get $7,500 off if you wanted to buy an electric car. Trump got rid of that. Biden wants to bring that back. And I think that's a good policy, but I, I fear that it's going to be a reliance on technological innovations rather than using less. I think one of the points you kind of made there, which is quite interesting and links to, I think, one of the, the broader challenges that Biden is actually going to have in terms of um, making this stuff um you know stick in terms of like making it work across the entirety of the us like you talked about oh yeah he's not mentioning bicycles and 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 bike paths and and things like that and i suspect that's largely because at a federal level that's got nothing to do with him it's got nothing to do with the federal government that's all going to be not even probably not even state level it's going to be like local councils local towns and, and things like that you know it, it's one thing for, for you know the, the prime minister of the uk to stand up and start talking about biking and things because we have a culture of where you know national things uh well national politicians talk about local issues in that kind of way um because there is an actual power to do something about it but the very structure of the american political system means that both Joe Biden and, and Trump or, or Clinton or Bush or, or whoever isn't necessarily like they can talk about it, but they've got absolutely zero ability to do anything about it in a load in a load of areas for the most part, because the the powers um, are very strictly codified as to what they can do as for, versus what state governments can do versus what local governments can do. When you talk about things like that, you are very much kind of highlighting one of the big issues he's got in that he can't just you know turn a switch and say america's like this now he's got to work through a very specific system which in many ways is built to limit his ability to to make changes 
that said, you are probably right with your broader point as well about Biden being a bit, probably a bit too reliant on, you know, technology is going to save us. It's a very American attitude to have, I think. It's, it's you know, we're just one great in- event, invention away from solving this problem. And, you know, new technologies absolutely have a part in that. The stuff that he is talking about, I think, is the things that he knows he can do. I suspect there probably will be some other stuff happening, but it's not necessarily going to be um, Joe Biden talking about it himself. It's going to be Joe Biden um, and, and the presidency working through state democratic parties and things like that to try and push certain agendas. And I suppose maybe a counterpoint to that is that as president, you do have that bully pulpit and you can use that to advance the debate on various things or indeed, um, as we've seen a couple of weeks ago, to try and launch an armed insurrection on the Capitol. So there is probably an extra rhetorical bows in his quiver that you you could say, uh, maybe it's just that it's not, cycling maybe is not quite as much part of American culture I know Boris Johnson, David Cameron made a big thing about the fact that they were cycling. Whereas I've, I don't think I've ever seen an American president on a bike, although I'm willing to be corrected. I mean, it was su- su- it was substantive enough that the very first episode of The West Wing was all about um, the president running, uh, riding his bike into a tree. As to that very famous real president, yeah, Jed Butler. Yeah. I'm sorry, Steve, to have to dispel these illusions <laughs> once again. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the the other thing I suppose is well I, I also I didn't know that Joe Biden was known as Amtrak Joe because when I, when I picture Joe Biden I picture a guy wearing aviator sunglasses sat in a car I didn't know he was obsessed with trains. Yeah. Uh, look, look, look so to build on one of Steve's earlier points some states have just gone ahead and done this anyway so California when Trump said he was leaving Paris California and New York basically went well we'll just do this ourselves and in, and California plans to be completely reliant on renewable energy by 2030. If you can build on that and you can get other states on board at a federal level, then that's half the battle. I mean, what, one point that I think is really important in this is that was something that Joe Biden has done, which I don't think people haven't, haven't done before, is that he's made it a national security issue. So he, he recognises that if climate change gets worse, there will be hundreds of thousands, possibly, of climate refugees coming from Central America. And Donald Trump wanted to build a wall, and obviously that was a rubbish idea and had no merit whatsoever. But will America accept 100,000 climate refugees? I suspect not. What if they turn up anyway? If, as as national security threat, what about, as you said earlier, lots of hurricanes, if Kansas, known for hurricanes, is now uninhabitable because there's just a year-long twister season rather than just the normal twister season and you can't live there anymore where are those people going to go they're going to go they're going to go somewhere else and will will surrounding states want them probably not so that's i think that's that's how i think joe can get people who aren't necessarily on board with climate change as a left issue on board as a national security issue because it will affect them at some point the other thing i think if climate change is is designated as a national security issue is it also gives the president a bit more uh, freedom of action as well so as steve has said the founding fathers and what i'm sure was their infinite wisdom have a lot of powers constrained on the president which means that we're in a weird situation where uh, well at the time of recording this uh, the president of the united states has 
a massive nuclear arsenal, but can't be trusted with a Twitter account, which I'm sure is exactly what the founding fathers would have wanted. The other thing then, in terms of the nuts and bolts that Biden can actually do, uh, is try and reverse a lot of the executive orders that Trump brought in or, or the or Obama level executive orders that Trump repealed. There are a few quirky ones, aren't there? There's anything from uh, high policy to low donuts. Kind of digging into this, you, you find a, a great variety in the sort of uh, policies that um, Trump either rolled back or completely just decimated in, in various forms. I mean, just to start with air pollution and emissions, um, he uh, Trump made it so that uh, companies didn't need to report methane emissions. Um, there was an Obama rule, um, which uh, basically uh, was all around mercury emissions from coal plants, um, which had a specific legal justification behind it. And uh, Trump withdrew the legal justification, uh, meaning that that rule could no longer uh, be implemented in that way. Explicitly revoked California's ability to set stricter tailpipe emission standards that were better than the federal government's. Uh, you know, so some some really petty stuff in there, absolutely. Um, but th there's just some wonderful, I say wonderful, like they're, they're bad policies, but they're just particularly obscure and, and, and odd in, uh, for instance, Trump repealed an Obama era regulation that would have nearly doubled the number of light bulbs subject to energy efficiency standards starting in January 2020. Who on earth, other than big light bulb, um, is, is kind of lobbying on that. That is not a policy that anybody actually thinks about, but it, it had to be gotten rid of, apparently. Likewise, in relation to like uh, animal protections, there was a rule um, which Obama set up which prevented using bait, such as, and this is the specific example given by the New York Times, um, prevented using bait such as grease-soaked donuts to lure and kill grizzly bears among the, uh, and other sport, sport hunting practices were happening on public lands in Alaska. And uh, my favourite one is overturned a ban on using parts of migratory birds in handicrafts made by Alaskan natives. Everything from the dear Lord, this is you can this is terrible. You can but you can see who's lobbying for it to some really random stuff that you just question who on earth is actually decided that this needs to happen and why were they even thinking about this the bird one's probably pretty straightforward trump just saw the word migrant and said no not having that so yeah so some of those policies are just ridiculous but some of them are really important so that methane policy methane is a massively more intense greenhouse gas than co2 and if you can't measure it then that's really that's really really bad so the other really important thing that I've, I got from reading Joe Biden's electoral address was that he wants to end the fossil fuel subsidy link. I, one, I think it's incredibly difficult because they're not going to give up. Like Joe Biden may say, I don't want your money. But, you know, these people who run the BPs and the shells are incredibly clever. And so they, they might find indirect ways. So that's the other really important point is that if you break that fossil fuel link to governments through lobbying, and Joe Biden can raise money and not have to rely on them, then he actually is free to then enact these policies that he wants to talk about. Because, you know, what, what's the usual lobbying game we play? Uh, somebody's wife, who is husband, is an executive who knows you from school or from Eton or 
university, they work for this lobbying company on behalf of an oil company. They then ask you for a favour and you know them, so you then give them that favour. And we continue the same fossil fuel life that we have for the past 100 years. And so if Joe Biden can break that, then that is incredibly important and actually gives me real hope that the things you talk about, like the $2 trillion investment can happen. Again, I, I find it fascinating in a horrifying way, both the sort of the, the psychology of Trump, the individual, and also the phenomenon of Trumpism as a, a sort of political movement. And it feels like a lot of those regulations bring a lot of that together because I think you've kind of got the the pathology of, well, Obama did this, so I'm going to do the opposite, which feels very much like, you know, Obama, like the Paris Agreement. Obama joined it, therefore we have to leave it um, in a similar way to leaving the Iran nuclear deal, even though in many ways it's very similar to the North Korea deal he tried to negotiate. Again, we, we could play amateur psychology on Trump for years and have been doing, but I think that's a part of it. And I think the other thing is it's that, that movement of business people behind Trump. And although obviously Trump is sort of there as a, as a business candidate and tries to market his business success, actually the sort of businessman backing Trump is not actually businessmen who build stuff and make, uh, not conventional businessmen. It's more your sort of venture capitalists saying so, you know, that Trump is involved in casinos and he leases his name on buildings for money. That's not the same as actually having a marketable you know, business route in the community which turns a profit and so I think part of that that fringe movement that backed Trump from the beginning it's not your typical pro-republican business or even your Wall Street lobbyists is it it is also your proper disaster capitalist um, or venture capitalist businesses as well which is I'm guessing why you also have these massive bonfires of, of deregulation too yeah, I think there's there's a lot of truth to that. Although I would say there is a, a, a difference between a venture capitalist and a disaster capitalist. Not all venture capitalists are disaster capitalists. Um, just to be fair to, to to them on at least one area. But yeah, no, it, absolutely. I think an awful lot of this is just down to Obama did it. Obama is the uh, was was the worst president ever. Therefore, if I undo all of his uh, his work, I will be the greatest president ever. Because as as you say, I think an awful lot of Trump's psyche and ego is just very much um, responsive and reactive because as we all know, Trump doesn't actually believe in anything other than, you know, he's the best and he couldn't possibly ever be wrong. As well as, and I promise this will be the last time with the psychology of Trump, hopefully we ever do on the podcast, but it's also that- That's a lie. <laughs> I might try and stick to the promise, you never know. Um, but it's also about that international cooperation we've talked about. Yeah. So for Trump, it's very much a zero sum you know, we, we can't cooperate. If we are cooperating, then you're winning at my expense. Yeah. I'm sort of hopeful that it's not just rhetoric, but it will be action because I do think there will be pressure from within the Democratic Party, but there's also a big electoral incentive for them to do so because in terms of the polling, both Democratic voters, but also a lot of wavering Republican voters see acting on climate change as a really massive issue. And so... I think actually it's a key way of trying to keep an electoral coalition together. And again, one of the big strengths of Biden as a politician is being able to be in the centre of the Democratic Party for 40 years. And I think as, as someone who's a who's a good party man, 
and wanted to try and consolidate elections given that we're already having to speculate about 2022 Senate elections because of the hellscape we're living in. Um, I think there's a big incentive there electorally for the Democrats to act on this as well. Yeah, one characteristic that Joe shows with Trump has the inability to do is show empathy. He actually, during the COVID uh, election campaign, he actually talked to people about loss and how he dealt with it and how he understands that people who are suffering deserve a chance to recover and deserve a chance to move on. With the Democrats winning the runoff in Georgia, it leaves them in a strong position to be able to enact policies which uh, under previous administrations would have been very difficult to do. On Biden's ability to work with Republicans on issues. And actually, there has been some cooperation in the Senate with Democrats and Republicans on environmental issues. So uh, there was a bill, I think, earlier in the autumn about banning hydrofluorocarbons or HFCs, which are are quite polluting and and a bit bad. And also a general bill about trying to protect wildlife habitats too. So even in um, a Republican-controlled Senate, there was action that was taken on the environment. So you'd hope that given Biden's, um, it's not just rhetorical, I think this is a genuine sort of want to try and work on both sides of the aisle, that you'll find maybe some sort of bipartisan support, which is maybe what you need, because as opposed to here, as we've sort of talked about on on an earlier episode, that conservative PMs like Margaret Thatcher, David Cameron, have tried at least rhetorically and practically to act on climate change. It has been a bit more of a party split in America uh, between Republicans and Democrats. So maybe there's a way of trying to build, um, knock down those barriers, or is that being absurdly optimistic? The Republican Party is in a complete shambles at the moment. I think they'll try and reach out, even on their own terms, to Biden, just to make them seem respectable again and not in a complete shambles, which Trump has turned them into. That's true. Don't want to over to the hope, do we, so early? <laughs> right, that's it for this week. We'll be back in your earphones next Sunday as well. Um, in the meantime, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, you had a feeling that you wanted to read an article on the environment or society or culture. Is there a particular website, Shaz, that maybe people should try and check in their lunch break or their tea break? Of course. Um, I'll be writing something about Joe Biden. So there might be a few details that we talk about in this podcast that I might elaborate on. So yeah, so check out my blog at shizaiety.com where I talk a lot about environmental issues and things like cycling and transport policy as well. So uh, check that out. And once you've read that and that has inspired you to act and you think, actually, one of the ways I could really improve the world is by giving a few pounds a month to one of my favourite podcasts. What could they do, Steve? like to always head over to uh, patreon.com slash not enough champagne where you can gain access to uh, unique pieces of content um, which only go out to our backers over there and um, that comes in the form of both blog pieces as well as uh, unique episodes that we record specifically for them uh, you'll also gain early access to various pieces so over the next uh, few weeks or so um, you'll find that uh, the pieces that are going up on the main website um, for not enough champagne uh, went up uh, earlier for our uh, backers as, as, as well so that they get uh, first sight on uh, everything that's uh, that's happening. 
Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Bookie Good Times. I'm at Paperback Riotus. I'm at Acoustic Radical. At Shaz Roman Percy. Happy plotting, everyone. Mm-hmm.